Hey, everybody. My name is Justin Murphy, and this is my podcast. It's called Other Life because it's where I talk about all the things I don't get to talk about in normal life. So if you're into it, you should definitely subscribe. And if you'd like to talk to other people interested in what I'm interested in, or ask me questions or request future topics or guests, please just follow the link in the show notes. Finally, I just want to give a huge thanks to all the donors and patrons. I could not keep this podcast running without financial backers, so I'm very grateful. And I would just say that if you enjoy this podcast or my blog or my videos, please do consider signing up to give a little bit of money each month. It would really help me grow out this project, and it would mean a lot to me. So thanks a lot. Now on to the podcast, over and out. We are going to do something different today. Usually, most of you are used to my live streams where... I will have someone on and we will talk for about two hours on any random smattering of topics that we feel like addressing. What we're going to do today is something a little bit more focused. We are going to, well, Johannes and I are in the process now of developing an online course. And this live stream is going to be one of the first opening salvos, if you will, in our experimental creative course content generation. So what we plan to do in this session today is essentially just lay out the themes, the basic themes that we plan to be covering in the main content for this course that we're developing. And it's so it's it's very similar to the first lecture session that you might, uh, you know, experience on a, a university campus on the first day of class when you first show up and the lecturers kind of introduce the syllabus give a kind of rough overview of the content that they expect to be covering over the next few weeks or months or whatever the case might be. So that's essentially what we're going to do. We're going to essentially introduce our syllabus, explain our plans for what what we plan on teaching in this course that we're doing on Heidegger versus Deleuze. And yeah, to give you a kind of foreshadowing of the actual content of the course. So we'll talk, we'll be developing somewhat in a very introductory preliminary way, we'll be, intro- we'll be introducing the, the ideas that we're going to be developing more thoroughly throughout the next few weeks and months. So something I'll let you folks know is that we're very open-minded about how we do this. We have a plan and that we're pursuing, but nothing is set in stone quite yet. So I don't think Johannes, I don't think either Johannes or I are very interested in democracy uh, per se. However, we know uh, good feedback when we hear it. So although I'm not going to present this as some kind of uh, big democratic uh, charade where you all get to kind of determine how the how we run the course or, or how the course is laid out, having said that, we are, I think, very open to suggestions, especially if you're really keen on a course like this, if you're the type of person who would love to take a course on, you know, the philosophy of technology between Heidegger and Deleuze, then we're very interested to hear what you think. If you have uh, requests or suggestions or proposals about particular things or ideas or styles that you would really like to see our course take up, definitely let us know. We're, we have a very open mind to it. We, we don't necessarily promise any particularly democratic responsiveness, but if you have a good idea, we're going to take that seriously. And we want to, we, uh, Johannes and I are both very interested in creating a new type of online course content that really truly does help people understand and really kind of give them what what they're looking for. I don't know about Johannes and, and the world of Heidegger studies, but the current state of kind of 
Deleuze instructional content is just atrocious. I mean, it, it is so bad. If you try to, if you actually really want to learn about Deleuze, just basically what did he mean? What was it all about? What are the, what, what are the actually basic useful upshots of his philosophy? You try searching the internet for this kind of thing. It's atrociously hard to find. I mean, it's all a bunch, typically the average instructional content about Deleuze is just, uh, e- as as dense and obscure and as difficult to understand as Deleuze himself. Uh, and so that's not mm-hmm. very helpful. So anyway, I digress. But my point is just that Johannes and I are both genuinely, I think, very interested in developing a course that is actually really going to explain things to people, not just give them a kind of fashionable, obscurantist type of consumer experience. So that's just a little bit of a introduction um, to the introduction. We are going to kind of uh, riff a little bit and chit chat informally at the beginning. And then you'll notice at some, some point in the next few minutes, Johannes and I are going to click into serious professorial mode in which point we will be essentially acting as if we are lecturers producing, producing course content. And at that time, folks, by the way, we're probably going to ignore the chat relatively. We're going to focus on presenting our ideas and developing the course. So we're, probably not going to be able to take questions, even if there are good questions, even if there are super chats while we're giving our, our introductions, we're going to basically ignore the chat, but we will review the chat once we're back um, after at the end, once we're back to a kind of normal interactive mode, like we are in right now, when we return to that after our introductory lecture sessions, then we will circle back to any of the good questions or comments that might've arisen in the chat. So don't hesitate to, feed comments or questions or whatever while we're talking just uh understand that we're probably going to ignore them and we'll only circle back to them towards the end all right so um johannes before we go in first of all welcome johannes and and thanks for thanks for joining me of course hi and uh before we click into the serious and focused mode of our lecture introduction today uh, is there anything you'd like to uh chat about or talk to the audience about um informally well it's good to be back um thank you very much uh, we've, we've we've stayed in touch obviously uh which is how this has come about um i think you'll say a few words once we get into it, why this is a good idea why it's necessary Mm-hmm. Um, and you mentioned, I, I don't know anything about Deleuze scholarship. I know a few things about Heidegger scholarship. I don't think there's something, you know, th- there are different branches as you know, there's the Dreyfusian reading and there's more uh, continental readings. Um, I guess the only thing I would say, and this will be, this will come up as well, um, later on and throughout the, the course has to do with language and translation. Um, I'll say a few things about why Heidegger translations tend to be um, distorting what he's trying to say. So when we speak of technology, and I'll say a few words about this later on, we, what Heidegger speaks about is, is not technology. <laughs> All right, so we have to be very, that, that's sort of the, 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 the carelessness um, that, that's, uh, that, that's sometimes visible. Uh, when it comes to Heidegger scholarship, it, it actually obscures it um, by by using terminology that's all too um, well, easy, maybe all too immediately understandable. 
Um, so it, it's exactly the other way around, maybe with Deleuze scholarship. I, I know a few papers mm. of, that, 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 that concern themselves with Deleuze and very often I have no idea what, what's going on. Um, but <laughs> I am, so what, I think what we are trying to do is to uh, cons, cons, consult these two thinkers who each in their own right um, were concerned from, from very different standpoints with technology and techniques uh, and this epoch and what the origin might be and where it, this might be leading towards. Um, and this is, uh, and I think in, in that sense, it's, it's important to, to do this, not, not to compare them and say, Oh, right. They're similar here. They're not similar here. Uh, this is what um, is done somewhere else. But we're trying to understand what what is to be learned from them and what ways of you can I mean, to, to speak poetically, what ways of existing they each make uh, show us right that are outside maybe certain official um, ways of how we how we're supposed to be. Right. Yeah, so, that's well put. So, yeah, it would be the informal part, and then we, then we start. All right. Yeah, I think that's. I think that's more than enough in, in, by way of uh, introduction uh, to the introduction to the yeah. more formal introduction. What I should say, actually, before we kick off, is, folks, there is a little link in the description below, which yeah. will just give you an opportunity to sign up via email just to hear more about future developments of the course. So it's yeah. not an ob- it's not an obligation at all. It just is a way to kind of help us gauge interest and gauge the number of people who are at least potentially interested in this course that we will yeah. be releasing uh, within a few months. So yeah. yeah, if you're interested in what we're talking about at any time, feel free to just click the link below and please do uh, sign up. You'll also that will give you the syllabus. So if you're interested in seeing a little bit more deeply, like what we're going to be covering exactly, yeah. then uh, just sign up at the link in the description and get the syllabus. And yeah, you can also shoot us any questions you have from there. Yeah. So what do you think, Johannes? Are you ready to get going? Yeah, sure. Why, All why right. Not? Yeah. So then that's great. So I would love to invite you, Johannes, to kick things off by giving us a little bit of an overview yeah. of the of the three lectures that you've planned for this course yeah um i'm starting off with i have a book in my hand i'm not sure if that's uh, people can see it it's uh gesamtausgabe uh, volume seven which is Vorträge and aufsätze talks and essays uh the first essay is the frage nach der technik uh which is usually translated as the question concerning technology uh, and it's <clears throat> you're you're obviously a native uh, english speaker so you can correct me if i you know, make a, 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 a say something completely uh, ridiculous uh, about the English uh, translation, and so stop me if I do, because uh, th- this can happen. <clears throat> this is, you know, as Hölderlin says, uh, language is the most dangerous good given to mortals by gods, mm-hmm. and <laughs> and we'll see maybe why as we uh, uh, progress further into the topic. Um, Heidegger himself says in an interview which is on YouTube, uh, in I think in the 60s, in a conversation with Richard Wisser, in a documentary that was made on his philosophy, um, that he's, I'm not against technology. He wants, to, he says, I want to understand the essence of technology, that that's the reason that technique, and where it comes from and, and what it means for us. Because Heidegger was, you know, harshly attacked 
simply for asking the question, what is technology or rather how does the technology unfold and what does it mean for us? And I understand that that kind of that, that, that you know, almost vitriolic aggression that he was uh, confronted with in the 50s and 60s for asking these questions uh, could come, could ar- might have arisen from um, <clears throat> that, you know, what I mean, if you follow <clears throat> people like uh, Nor- Norbert Wiener, who are one of the godfathers of cybernetics, so cybernetics is a, is a positive feedback loop, right? So, a, a, what a and a positive what 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 cybernetics wants to do is to is to formalize language. Now, you can formalize a lot, but you cannot formalize questions. So, a question interrupts the positive feedback loop. But if you you're always circling around and around and around. And then all of a sudden, the, the philosopher has the audacity uh, to diagnose what is and ask, well, what is technology? Right? Where does it come from? That, that interrupts the operation. Uh, and maybe that's where the anger came from. <clears throat> but now, <clears throat> interestingly, decades, decades later, uh, Heidegger's philosophy, Heidegger is probably best known uh, internationally for the, the notion of Dasein, um, for being in the world, and at the same time for his uh, diagnosis of, of technology. And <clears throat> in my part of the course, and I think the way we will do this is we have these conversations, so we have a conversation today, then we take care of our parts of, of the online course. So I will have three lectures and you will have three lectures, um, more than three hours each. And then we'll talk about it again, about our findings and uh, convergences and where they separate, etc. Um, but in, in my part of the course, I will talk about just the, the very basic idea of, of Heidegger's uh, diagnosis of technology as our epoch, which is the first part. And then the second part, we'll talk about what technology, more or less, what it does, the loss of nearness and this weird de-distancing that happens in technology and the second, and it will also look at, for example, the an, an essay by Heidegger on the age of the world picture, uh, which looks at how the sciences operate and how it comes, uh, how, you know, how the history of being is at work here, which is something that maybe is of interest, Geschichte. And the last part is on the so, so-called, it's translated as fourfold, but I would say so it's gethiert in German, which means something like the, the gathering of four regions of divinities, mortals, sky, and earth, which is a, a human world um, that is possible at the same time as gestell, as in framing is possible, um, if human beings accept their mortality and become, as Heidegger says, mortals. So th- that we've talked about this last time, the community of mortals is formed, um, can be formed here, and then that is a response to technology that is denying um, the will it's due. So it's not, a, it's not an attempt to willfully overcome uh, technology, but to, as Heidegger often says, verwinden. So he doesn't say überwinden, which would be overcome, but verwinden is, is like verwinden in English is get over, but it also means something like to turn it, turn Gestell uh, ar- around from within itself. Um, <clears throat> so it doesn't mean to get rid of uh, technology or technological tools or anything, but to take a released stance towards the possibilities that are now being granted to us finite mortal beings. 
And the question concerning technology, the uh, Frage nach der Technik, this essay, um, has a very strange uh, beginning. He says, in, in folgenden fragen wir nach der Technik, in what's, in what's following, we ask after technology. And he says that it's a, it's a thinking, it's a path that's being opened up, a certain path, a thinking path, that must, in, a, in an unusual way, um, strive through or walk through language. So it's, it's, it has to, he mentions language in the first paragraph. And then he says that what this essay is supposed to do in his other essays is not to critique technology or to get rid of technology, but we ask for what it is, why? To prepare a free relationship with techniques, with technology. And that's what Heidegger is after. So Heidegger wants us to become free in our relationship with technology. Why? Because he hears, you know, he's, as you know, he's a hermeneutical thinker. He hears in, in, so we have to master technology. We have to master the nuclear age. Today, we, you know, you can sometimes hear, uh, we have to master digitization. Um, or we have to, you know, champion um, certain developments. And so Heidegger, that indicates that there's something else at work that's not human. And we have to kind of, we have to become uh, able to deal with, with what's coming. Um, and it, the fact that it has to do with language, that he mentions that as well, is, is important in the sense that there is a, a, a danger present also in this conversation. As far as when I say technology, we have maybe people listening who are in India or in China, Germany, France, America, and <clears throat> technology will mean something else to almost everyone, wherever they are. And Heidegger speaks of technique. So Ivo de Cinaro has uh, um, pointed out that it might be better to speak of techniques because technology in, in English means something like the, you know, the, the technology of, of writing. So something that you, that you can do or the technology of something uh, like um, a phone is a technological tool or something of something technological. But Heidegger is after something else. Heidegger is after how in this epoch, a certain way of disclosing and bringing forth beings, how they appear is, has become possible and has become exclusive. And that's what he calls techniques. And the other weird thing about this translation of die Frage nach der Technik, it means the question after techniques, right? So you kind of, you're, if you say, correct me if I'm wrong, if you say concerning technology, then you're, you're, you're already, you've kind of, you've already mapped out the field, right? You already know what it is, what it is you're asking for mm. concerning this particular thing. And then, then I'm just have to say a few things about it. But if you ask after a phenomenon, you admit that you don't know yet what it is that will be disclosed, that will disclose itself to you in the um, in the process uh, or in the uh, occasion that you uh, of of questioning what is that makes today. And Heidegger is after this 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 epoch and what is exclusively showing itself to be dominant. So we so the translation then becomes of, of this essay. The question after techniques. And then he asks for the Wesen der Technik. And uh, usually that's essence of technology, but essence, of course, bears again these metaphysical connotations with you know the whatness of technology. So, but Heidegger asks for Wesen in, in the sense of uh, a realm. 
So techn techniques opens up a certain realm within which beings come to appear in a certain way that um, the, in, in an exclusive way such that they stand ready as Bestand, right? As a standing reserve. And this, this realm he calls in German Gestell, the gathering of Stellen, of positioning and positing and placing. And that's, if you like, the, the realm that Technics opens up is the gathering of all of positioning in a, in a parametric system, thanks to which we can uh, use by using the parameters of time and space um, as means um, to control um, any being from and, and, and extract energy from um, the from, from, from beings as they are as they appear to us. So um, I, I think uh, what, what Heidegger then is after is not so much technological tools, but he's after a certain setting forth or bringing forth or disclosure of beings of which, so it's, there's a certain, you could say there's a certain horizon of possibilities and technological tools like the radio, the computer, the camera, um, the smartphone, even the nuclear bomb to a certain degree are manifestations, you could say, of this way of making beings present. Uh, and so what Heidegger is after then is, 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 is looking for ways of interacting with this force that's at work here in such a way that it, it, we don't become destroyers. Mm. That we don't become overly destructive. So, if if anything that that can be learned from Heidegger, it's about not falling for extreme um, responses to what's happening. Right? Because mm. one one could say, with um, destruction of with the destruction of the environment, for example, a, a, an extreme response could be let's get rid of of human life. That could be that would be an extreme response. Or the other extreme response would be total and utter carelessness and even even wanting to destruct everything or another extreme response would be to try to control um the climate right? geoengineering is an extreme response to that and it kind of but it but but that geoengineering is is a maybe a good example because it 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 is the will to will at work it it, it assumes that we can perfectly control um the, the world as as we see it and 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 control it thanks to the parametric system that we're using to do that and while we neglect in 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 these attempts to control we neglect concealment or disappearance or withdrawal so we we, we assume that what we have in front of us what's present to us um is exactly everything as it is and that it, there's nothing else that that maybe that that's hidden in it that we have complete and absolute and total access to what something is and what something will lead to insofar as we set the conditions and the parameters to get a desired result um but it might just be that by an attempt to total control for example of the weather or anything else um that we that we that 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 what we're trying to control is withdrawing and that comes back and hit, hits us from from the other end. And it always, it has to do with the very simple terms that, that we're denying mortality, I think. 
Because if you don't, if you deny more, that that means finitude, and that means finite capacities, finite capacity to control and um, exert, uh, uh, you know, willful domination over the earth. Mm. That that would be, um, I think, where Heidegger stands in terms of his question after techniques or let's say technology, um, and what the response would be is this released stance of of letting go. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. Now, are you finished with your yeah. presentation, Johannes? I didn't mean to cut you off. You can keep going. We can do whatever we want. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, it's okay for now, yeah. That was great. That was really interesting and thought-provoking. I have a few questions, kind of trying to put myself in the shoes of someone who might want to take our course, actually, and the, you know, yeah. thinking, about, <laughs> thinking about the types of questions that people might have. One, one question that comes to me, is I'm a little curious how much Heidegger is responding to the developments in technological advancement that are happening at the time of his writing. Is he are his ideas on philosophy very sort of eternal and timeless and, and not especially related to the particular technological advancements happening in the time that he's writing, or do you know his theories to have been influenced significantly by his observations of what was happening at that time. Could you speak to that, any of that at all? Obviously he's, he's, he's a, he's a, he's a response to German idealism. So he, he responds to Kant. I mean, he, but when I say that time and space are parameters, that, that in itself could only be said by a contemporary modern philosopher, Mm. because time and space were not parameters before Kant and Descartes and, and before modernity. What Heidegger says about, what sets off modernity is the is man's rebellion against being is that being becomes something that we posit right mm. that we think that we have access to the beingness of beings for example the genetic code so he's i mean in in this empirical manner that the question was posed obviously he's very much uh responding to what he sees happening. He even says something like, we will produce human beings the way we need them. This, this will happen. And this is not, a, a, he's not making a moral uh, judgment mm-hmm. or claim. He just says, this is what's going to, this is inevitably coming. Um, and we better get ready and understand where this is coming from. Um, so, yeah. He's responding absolutely to, so I would even say <clears throat> that, that with Heidegger, you have a unique case of someone who's born in the 19th century mm. um, in, in rural southern Germany, who then sees the, you know, the two world wars and, and the destruction and sees what, 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 how, how, what a radical shift these other new technological, technological tools are compared to uh, more uh, less advanced uh, tools. Mm. And, and, and did his ideas on technology evolve significantly over his over his lifespan? Do you do you note or discuss significant changes in that regard, or is there a fairly coherent view, kind of from the beginning to the end? Well, um, I'm not sure I fully understand the question. I think that Heidegger, I think that Heidegger, Heidegger begins to um, think after. If you like techniques or technology, and it, as I said, this is—it's not so much to do with technological tools. There, it, it has to do with with how what is becoming possible 
in this current epoch, uh, thanks to the way in which human beings have begun to respond to being itself or in what is called what we call modernity. Um, so in, in what, what he sees as active in, in, in this epoch is, is the will. Right. Is which is why the will is uh, it, is so prominent in in for example in German idealism for Schelling being or we're being primordial being is the will uh, for Hegel will is knowledge willing is knowledge knowing for <clears throat> Nietzsche there's a will to power active in all beings. And for Heidegger, this, this then shows itself to be a will to will, a will that wills itself. Why? As Fichte says, well, because it is so, right? So, uh, and, and that, 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 this circularity is what others call the positive feedback loop. That, that's the, the cybernetic circuit that just circles around itself. Um, okay. so in, in that sense, Heidegger is, if you like, coherent. Um, and not just coherent, it, he shows the necessity from out of which this is growing, and then sees also ways of how you res can you res how you can respond to that without falling for the trappings of the of of, of a willful uh, attempt to overcome this, because that would just, if you like, feed the the will again. Um, but in terms of you know, very sorry, yeah. No, I said okay. That that makes sense. Yeah. So it's, I, I was just kind of curious if there were any particular inflection points in his life and career where his views on technology changed. I was especially just kind of curious about perhaps one can imagine after World War II, perhaps, you know, uh, one might update one's attitudes towards the role of technology, but it sounds like he's working on a, a very uh, general level perspective throughout the course of his life that d doesn't seem too uh, reliant on particular empirical observations. Is that fair to say? No, as I said before, he, he, I mean, empirical, these are terms that maybe don't make that, that much sense. But, um, I mean, if you mean empirical in terms of experience, then yes, Heidegger responds to the nuclear mm. bomb. Of course he does, right? Sure. See, and he, by the way, Heidegger is one of the first to do that, and he's viciously attacked. How, how can you deny that, that we will use uh, nuclear energy peacefully? Right. Mm. And for Heidegger, it says that there's something strange uh, at work if, if we if we have access all of a sudden to such vast amounts of energy. Um, so he's always responding that he actually I mean, this is what's so powerful. He says, for example, that the, the way the framework now works is that, for example, the river, the the Rhine, uh, is 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 no longer um, allowed to be the 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 Rhine that inspired Hölderlin's poetry or poem, um, mm. but is now uh, ordered to stand ready to generate energy for the cities that are nearby and to generate energy for the chemical uh, factories that are nearby. And it's also the Rhine is as well ordered by the tourism industry uh, to stand ready for uh, pleasure and leisure. Mm. Uh, so he's uh, very much uh, responding to the, if you like, in this, you know, kind of historical sense, the, this very epoch and to the phenomena being a phenomenologist of what, what he sees happening. And he's trying to ask, what is the framework thanks to which or within which this is happening? And this is possible to happen such that, for example, experiences become formats, right? 
I mean, what do I mean by this? I mean, you you can book, you can book a romantic weekend, <laughs> right? This is very strange. Can, can you can you actually do that? So, can you book romanticism? <laughs> Right? right. Or have you noticed something else? Uh, I gave a talk a couple of days ago in London. And I said, did you notice that events before they happen are historical? Before mm. something happens, it's all it's already happened. And for Heidegger, this is exactly the, the, you know, this is the historical human being, the historical man who is the technical man who stands on a balcony overlooking the world, just witnessing it, not really, not really in it and really participating in it. Mm. And Heidegger is diagnosing that and says this has to do with how techniques operates. It operates on the level of bringing forth or, or disclosing beings in, in such a way that, that, that what their unique character is, is not important. What's important is that they function well. Right. Okay. No, that's very, that's very good. And I guess I'll just ask you one more question then, if I may. Yeah. I recall when I first read the question concerning technology, Heidegger makes a distinction between technology and modern technology, if I recall correctly. For him, there is something unique about what he calls modern technology. However, that's originally written in the in the German. Yeah. And it's it's interesting. It's not it's not terribly easy to understand. From what I recall, for instance, he gives some examples. For instance, the as an example of pre-modern technology, we might have something like uh, the windmill, I think he might he might mention if yeah. I recall correctly, versus modern technology would be something like the power plant. Yeah, and it's intuitive enough to see that there's some type of difference between the windmill and the power plant. But I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to and clarify a little bit more this. What what exactly is unique about modern technology, to Heidegger? Um, it's that, so what the windmill does is, and the windmill example comes from Leibniz, obviously, right? Leibniz, uh, Leibniz's mill uh, shows Leibniz, one of, one of the most beautiful things uh, he's written is to, is to show to the, 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 uh, the mechanic philosophers that nature cannot be mechanical because if it's just a machine, if you walk into a mill, you see there's nothing there that's moving it. There's no, nothing that is, there's no self-movement. It needs the wind to um, to get its uh, uh, cocks going. And for, um, <clears throat> so there's, what's lacking is with the Greeks, it's is physis, right? It's the self-rising, which always hides itself. Right? So being, it hides itself, it, it's withdrawing, but we'll get into that maybe at some point. But for um, if you take the windmill, the windmill uh, waits for the wind to come, and it, it's not permanently turning. It's not permanently working. It has to. So there are certain seasons when you have enough uh, crop uh, to actually to use the mill, and then you wait for the for the wind to come, and then you work with the wind. Um, in 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 terms of uh, in in, in codependence, if you like. Uh, with the seasons um, and and the area and the region you're in. Oh, and Sorry, um, you, you cut out for just a second. Just repeat yourself for the past okay. ten seconds. I, 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 yeah, and I think what what the so for example to come back to the River Rhine, uh, the the um, the the Wasserkraftwerk. Um, what's that? The the water. Uh, turbines that produce energy they can uh, they can always produce energy what they do is they 
they kind of uh, they they change um, uh, the the they, they look at um, the the streaming of the river as the potentiality to produce energy for the sake of producing energy for the sake of operating uh, further circular systems. Mm. I think. Um, you, you see, there's there's no dependency, and and this is why we are dr- w- what we really want is sustainable energy, right? It's sustainable is ultimately hyper technologized. That's the perfect the perfect positive feedback loop would be to reach a level of perfect sustainable energy, and so it, it's no longer this dependence on um, on the, the, the assumption on 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 the seasons. The assumption becomes that you can you can always extract the same amount of energy um, and, and can, you can do this in a circular manner for forever. Hmm. And it's simply circling around itself, not dependent on, um, on the, on, on the weather or anything else. That's, that's sort of the, I think that's one of the ways of, of distinguishing it, but also uh, that Hmm. the, say the, the river itself is then seen as a source of energy. And mm. and that's so that that way the way that the river is disclosed to us is different from how the, the wind is disclosed um, when it plays with uh, the the windmill. Mm. Okay, because then the wind is not seen as as a source of energy, but as um, or is it? Maybe it is, and I'm completely wrong. And there are historical. Uh, <laughs> testimonies where, where people say that this is uh, energy and I, I'm completely mistaken here, but it's, um, I think that the way it's, everything is being disclosed that everything is a, is a source for something else. Heidegger has somewhere in here and I, I couldn't put it better is that, you know, uh, the earth is a source for, or, and, or is a source for uranium or whatever. It, it, it everything just becomes a, a, a resource for something else rather than a working with if you like a working with the earth and 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 understand an understanding that the earth is something that retains itself that doesn't fully ever disclose itself um which is by way of 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 <clears throat> interacting with the world in such a manner you, you don't have to respect seasons anymore which we don't right in, industrial food production or agrarian food production is now virtually does not have to respect the seasons you, you can circumvent that um you can grow crops um just about anywhere not really but it, it's 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 this kind of the the attempt is to create these perfect uh circuits that that produce energy while mm-hmm. while the windmill or the miller would have to wait for the wind to come johannes what you're saying about the difference between modern technology and pre-modern technology is almost reminiscent of Marx's distinction between use value and exchange value. Why? It's, it sounds quite similar, doesn't it? Because, in, of course, in the Marxist, you know, in this basic kind of Marxist distinction, it's quite self-explanatory. Use value is the value you get out of an object, for instance, um, in actually using it. Whereas exchange value is this new weird form of value that capitalism brings forward in which an object can be valuable, not just for what it can do for you in that moment, but because for what it might potentially sell for. And once you have that form of exchange value to Marx, this is, you know, one of the one of the defining symptoms mm-hmm. of the new weird world of capitalism, because just like you're saying about technology, once 
once objects can store this kind of potential value other than just their use value, all of a sudden now they enter up into these circuits, which yeah. is, is again, oh, that's a word that you used, which yeah. is quite apropos to the, to the Marxist, you know, yeah. diagrams of money, money, capital, money, right? That, the famous MCM circuit, for instance, you know, exchange value is precisely what enters objects into this um, kind of crazed totalizing circuit of, okay. of infinite possible value, which is also infinite possible exploitation. Everything is, everything becomes, in other words, it, it's exchange value. And that, that essentially makes of things a kind of Heideggerian standing reserve. Is that, am I on the right track or would a student, uh, no, would a student, would, have, would a student be on the right track to, to make these types of connections? I would, I would have to think about it more, but I would, I would say from, from a Heideggerian perspective, I would say what Marx is describing is, is um, comes a bit later. So what Heidegger is after is how is it that beings become disclosed in such a way that what Marx calls capital or capitalism becomes possible, right? It's that there must be a shift occurring before, which is such that, that beings are posited as standing reserve, such that they stand ready to be, uh, to be used and, have energy extracted from them. And then on top of that, you, you get to the, that distinction of use value and exchange value. Okay. So in other words, it's the, it's the attitude or perspective that we have on technology, the mentality. Yeah, no, it's, it's a bit deeper because attitude is a sociological or psychological uh, term, right? right. Well, 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 <clears throat> what I mean, the, the, the problem is that when you speak about techniques or technology in Heidegger, if you really want to understand what's going on, we have to enter into science geschichte and that will be part of the course. I think it's maybe too much now for a live stream, but it will be in the course. It will be, um, you know, especially in the, uh, I think in, in the second uh, hour or second lecture, it will be prominent because it's significant to understand it. Cause if not, then we're, we're always on the level of what Hubert Dreyfus was doing, right? It's just, Oh, you know, if we just drink tea like the Japanese and everything will be fine. It's just our attitude. If we just change our attitude, no, there's some, there's because that that's still to a certain degree, a humanistic uh, um, position that, that places the human being at the center of it. Uh, if we just willfully change our attitude, then boom, this other utopia comes about. No, there's what, what, what has happened, what, you know, but if we categorize it as modernity, and then you can also question why is this epoch called modernity? Maybe, maybe that leads some people to look up the etymology of the word. Um, uh, then you, there's a certain way of responding to being, right? To the ereignis, to this realm within which being and human being encounter each other. And so it's um, by our responding to it, Un, unknowingly what might happen mm. um we we could end we, we something comes back at us in sort of in waves um ecstatically th working through history through us and then that uh in uh leads opens up ways of being that we didn't plan for there to to be or to come about and i mean are you still there yes i'm here i just okay. had a light thing i'm carry on it's a bit irritating, but anyway. Um, yeah, so sorry. What I'm trying to say is that um, it, it's not just, you know, you cannot simply change an attitude and then all of a sudden something else will 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 come about. It's it's We are always responding to the question of being, and the question of being is this realm that we stand in that we don't fully 
that we cannot fully see. But what, what we're responding to in a way is that, you know, a certain, a, a, if you like, a certain careful stance uh, is something that we can take. Um, the, then And then that brings about um, ways of existing or um, being that are not uh, currently in, in the exclusive manner of, of Gestell, of in framing of positionality, mm-hmm. present, but they're there. And so I would just say that it's, but it's, it's, um, it's, it has to do with, with an, with an appreciation for the fact that we are not in control of simply changing everything now, but it has to do with a stance you take. And then that opens up ways of being that you, that you don't know yet that, which, which you don't know yet how they, what they would look like. Right. Okay. Yeah, no, that, that, that's helpful. Johannes, I have a, just a slight unexpected camera problem. I have to run into the other room real quick. So I'm just going to ask you one last question, if that's okay with you. And yeah. I'll let you riff for a little bit. And I'll be back in just one minute. Mm-hmm. Is that okay? Yeah. So it's difficult asking this question because you you speak of releasement and a kind of released attitude towards technology as being one of the upshots of the Heideggerian perspective. And, and yet a lot of people I think will want to, will want to understand how the released response or the, or the released perspective is different than just kind of naive bourgeois passivity. (laughs) Could you speak to that a little bit? I'm not sure what naive bourgeois passivity is. Oh, well, meaning in other words, you know, we look out at the world today and we see uh, you know, lots of people who are have a relatively relaxed attitude towards towards everything. They're not really too concerned about solving any problems. They're kind of just um, carrying on their life with inertia, oh. with with unreflective inertia. And that is a kind of you know there th- that is a kind of uh, a releasement from from the the problems of the world and and the challenges of of modernity and. No. A lot of people will want to know: Is it, you know, is it the case that the the ultimate upshot of of philosophical reflection is essentially to justify and validate um, a kind of no. unconcerned, uninvested, relaxed attitude no, towards no, 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 nothing? What what I've said would suggest that. Nothing. No, no, I'm not saying that. I'm just thinking. I'm thinking a lot of people might might feel yeah. like it, it sounds like that in the end no no because absolutely not because right I mean, if, yeah but but absolutely not because even just asking the the very question to, be, to speak in terms of you know un, unreflected unconcerned um uh going on about your daily life without any uh, uh worry about anything heidegger is for heidegger is he sees as the as the the greatest threat in this epoch that we are fleeing from thinking. He says this in a text um, entitled Gelassenheit. He says, it seems as if modern man is attempting to flee from thought, from, if you'd like to translate that, from reflecting on what is. Heidegger's stance is all about asking what is. So it is an extremely, extremely involved participation uh, in what currently is. It's all about understanding the present epoch the present age and not uh, trying to um, deny that importance at all. It's not, it's not about, so releasement doesn't mean I, I don't care what's happening as long as, um, as long as I have my, 
my nice uh, television set and I can watch uh, whatever uh, uh, pleasures me or as long as I can enjoy um, any kinds of, of, of modern luxuries. Um, th that's not at all what Heidegger is after. He's after a, a, a critical sense. And especially uh, when you think about uh, his, his continued focus on mortality and the, the request for us to become mortals, that that's the opposite of the petty bourgeois Uh, stands of you know let let me have my my living room and my pianoforte and uh, and and my Goethe bust and I will be happily uh, fading into oblivion <laughs> on happy pills once I can take this shit any longer. No, he's all about it's 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 it's, it's, it's so the Gelassenheit is a, is a very strange. It's it's it just means that you 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 abandon the will, the will to. Um, radically or or forcefully bring about change but so you you kind of gelassenheit means also to to lassen so let letting go and letting go of that will but also to let yourself into the world again and then something else arises but it has to do with a it with really a, a difficult stance that you can take and I, i think one of the most difficult things to admit to oneself is that you will die mm. So it's not at all about pushing everything away. It's just about um, uh, rather um, admitting, which is also difficult, that we're not all powerful. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I think that's a really good introduction to how you see Heidegger and the, ma and the major themes that you plan on discussing in, in your lecture sessions for this online course that we're developing. Thank you. Yeah, that's very good. Very, very stimulating. You have me quite interested in seeing your lectures. So I, I think the plan is I will now speak for a little bit on yep. the three lectures that I will do on Gilles Deleuze and technology. Yep. And Johannes can in turn, ask me whatever questions he wants uh, mm -hmm. when, when I'm done. So I'll speak for about 15 or 20 minutes. And by the way, folks, just to let you know, if you're here, if you're joining just in the past few minutes, um, we are developing an online course on Deleuze and Heidegger on technology. Johannes will be teaching three lectures on Heidegger and I'll be doing three lectures on, on Deleuze. Each one will be, uh, we haven't exactly formalized it, but at least an hour each. And yeah, at the end, we're going to find it interesting and hopefully compelling way to package it and present it yeah. as an online course. So if this is something that you're interested in, just letting you know, there's a link below, just sign up to get the syllabus and get on the waiting list in case we cap it. So Uh, that's just for people who have joined recently and maybe have no idea what they've just landed in. So great. So now I'll speak for a little bit on my three lectures. So I think the relationship between Deleuze and technology is very different than I think uh, the relationship between Heidegger and technology. You know, uh, Deleuze does not ask the question, what is technology? For Deleuze, his his ideas on technology are much more diffuse. I would say his, his philosophical perspective and especially his later political writings with Guattari are suffused with a kind of technological attitude or a, a particular kind of uh, technological philosophy that isn't necessarily made explicit too frequently. Heidegger, I'm sorry, Deleuze does not have, you know, long books about technology per se, But it's easy to see in his writings that technology looms large. You often hear him write about machines, for instance. And he's he cites 
and kind of traffics in a lot of previous philosophical and even kind of empirical, somewhat social scientific work that is, again, suffused with technology. So there is no doubt a Deleuzian perspective on technology. It's just a little bit more implicit. Uh, and, and it's also, I would say, a little bit more political. And I don't intend to make my lectures primarily political, but I am by vocation and by temperament somewhat a, a more of a political theorist. So yeah. we will be talking a little bit more about technology from a somewhat tactical tactical perspective, because I do think that at, at the core of Deleuze's philosophy, there is a really kind of practical interest. Um, I think Deleuze is very interested in ethics, essentially, and and the question of how should we live in the context of an accelerating technological society that, you know, such as the one that we find ourselves in. Mm -hmm. So the progression of my lectures will be as follows. The way I've decided to set this up is we're going to start with one lecture on Deleuze's famous short text, uh, the postscript, the post, the postscript on societies of control. And this is an interesting text for Deleuze because first of all, it's quite short, but second of all, it's quite concrete. It's actually one of his more concrete statements on the, you know, the nature of the contemporary epoch from, from a kind of empirical perspective. Most of his, most of his texts are not, are not so empirical. This is his effort to kind of sit down and say in a very concise and condensed way, what exactly is this new situation that we find ourselves in technologically in the contemporary digital age? How is it different? In what way does he differ in his perspective from another type of uh, kind of luminary such as Michel Foucault, whose perspectives on technology and the history of, 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 of technology and and social and political practice are, you know, very influential and still are. So this is really his his uh, very short and concrete effort to delineate specifically how he sees the current technological moment and precisely what he thinks are the primary social and political implications or coordinates of of the contemporary technological moment. And so in some sense, my lectures, my three lectures will proceed in an almost reverse chronological order because we're kind of starting at the end. In other words, we're starting Deleuze wrote this essay late in life. Um, and it's very much a kind of uh, empirical diagnosis of trends that we now associate with um, the, the current kind of 2019 technological uh, experiences that we're having with things like social media and digital technology. It's really, this is, this, this essay is Deleuze's effort to, I think really address the question of, of truly contemporary digital technology, such as computers and, and later, you know, the internet, he's writing essentially at the birth of the internet around in the early 1990s, he's writing this essay, uh, late in his life. But for us, you know, really right at the cusp of what we're all now living through and, and, what many of us are so perplexed by. So it's somewhat counterintuitive to start at the end of his career and to start with this uh, concise, uh, somewhat empirical short essay. But I think it, it makes a lot of sense because it's closest to us. That, that's why I chose to start with the lecture on this, on this essay, because it's, it's Deleuze at his very closest to our contemporary experiences. And it also has the benefit of being quite 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 short and concrete. So I think it's a good first way to kind of sink our teeth into Deleuze's philosophy uh, or perspective on technology. And 
some, I'll say a, a couple more things about that. The, the first is that one of the things that's really interesting about this essay is the the silent partner of this essay is is probably Michel Foucault and um, Michel Foucault's diagnosis of different kind of technological and political periods. His periodization has been extremely influential, and so most of you might be aware of, for instance, you know his very famous book A Discipline and Punish on on prisons, right? And he also wrote about madness. He wrote about other great institutions of of what he called enclosure. These are disciplinary. These are large disciplinary institutions that in his perspective are kind of the defining uh, political technologies, if you will, um, from the, the period roughly of about, I believe he dates it from about 1650 to the late 19th century. So in that period, I think it's what he calls the classical period, if I recall correctly, there, this is the period of great disciplinary enclosures, the school, the prison, and these institutions are really developing and rationalizing their their uh, their mechanisms, if you will. And he argues that these institutions, for all of these years, for this you know significant chunk of of the modern period, are what they're really doing is that they're they're developing increasingly rational rules and codes and norms that allow these large institutions to essentially siphon off and section off to quarantine different types of people whose nature or tendencies present kind of social and political problems to, to the, the, the stability of the status quo. So the school is this kind of increasingly elaborate rational bureaucracy that is evolving in this time period to, to control and discipline and contain to enclose the, the unruly, potentially dangerous figure of, you know, the, the young child or the pupil or whatever the case might be. And then the same thing goes for, for the prison, for instance, or the mental hospital. And, and Foucault, of course, did a lot of research to, to kind of tease out what that looks like and how that works in practice. And what Deleuze is really saying in his essay is he's trying to really mark a break from this perspective. He's trying to say that a new period is now here and that Deleuze's institutional in, you know, the institutions of enclosure, the institutions of discipline are no longer the main players in town. And in fact, they're rapidly disintegrating. The power of this kind of traditional institutional enclosure is rapidly disintegrating and that we're now entering into a new type of relationship with the, with technology. A new kind of technological civilization is, is, is upon us. And this is what he calls the, the control society. So whereas Foucault in, in this in this classical period that he describes, mostly discusses institutions of discipline and closure. Deleuze wants to say that now all of that is disintegrated, but we have these loose axiomatics. We have these, um, everything is decoded. All flows and potential energy is now escaping the institutions, but there are new forms or new devices, new, new technologies, in other words, that are nonetheless controlling and channeling and containing those flows or fluxes or energies or whatever you'd like to call them. And essentially these are algorithms. These are, you know, we're, we're going to go into much more detail about what Deleuze means by these things. And that's going to be essentially one of the purposes of this lecture and of the course. So he has these ideas about, for instance, um, what he calls the codes. He and, he and Guattari call them, call them codes versus axiomatics. He basically argues that pre-capitalist societies 
are based on coding, whereas capitalist societies are based on um, the the axiomatics of decoded flows. What on earth does that mean? Not many people know. Even the people who are out there on the internet writing explanations or you know um, in, producing instructional content, most of the time when you when you look at those pieces of instructional material you can find on the internet. It's just more Deleuzian gobbledygook. It just goes deeper into the hole of what exactly he's trying to say by something as outlandish as the axiomatics of decoded flows or decoded fluxes. And I actually think though, that there is a very coherent and not necessarily very obscure understanding of that. And it's essentially what you're seeing. We see it in a concrete way playing out today in, in our life. Right. So, um, Algorithms, for instance, are obviously all over our experience of the world. When we turn on Netflix, what we're being shown is being shaped by essentially computer programs that are processing huge amounts of data before, you know, it, before we even log on and, and completely in the background of anything that we experience. This is happening all over the place. And these, these algorithms are essentially um, giving to us precisely what we desire, at least on some sense, at least on some level or in some sense. And they're able, so in other words, we're being controlled through a kind of optimization of our affects and the axiomatics are essentially the, the, the directives of the market. So now that we have this kind of all encompassing, increasingly intensified kind of global techno capitalist market machinery, that's never before been so refined, able to kind of measure us at uh, ever finer levels of granularity and able to deploy or, or apply uh, various changes, various um, outputs at a, a variety of different levels with, with great kind of predictive validity. Now that we have this to the degree that we have it, there is no need for institutional disclosures. Flows, all of our energies and, and, and fluxes can be decoded. We're free to kind of leave the school. We're free to drop out of academia. We're free to, you know, um, you know, uh, Perhaps the, you don't have to go to prison. You can have some kind of complicated uh, parole or or probation where you know you don't have to go into these great disciplinary enclosures. But you're going to have an ankle bracelet. You're going to have these other rules and norms that are controlling you. So what? So we we see very concretely that there is something new and real that's happening now that that wasn't happening in in the you know Foucault's institutions of enclosure. Uh, but what exactly is it? And this obscure vocabulary of decoded flows and axiomatics and things things like this is it, it really is a kind of concrete effort to model what exactly is going on and to describe how it works. It's not this kind of uh, really obscure, flowery, abstract philosophy. I, I really do think that it's it's a kind of empirical model that allows us to hopefully get to the bottom of what exactly is going on. And so. That's going to be the focus of the second lecture is precisely how do these how do these mechanisms of contemporary capitalist technological control, how exactly do they function? How do they work? And so um, whereas the first lecture is going to be just introducing the postscript on the societies of control and uh, putting it into a, a particular historical context, especially, you know, linking it back to what I would call essentially just the information revolution. Mm. I think that is the, the essential empirical pivot that um, distinguishes the, the, this change that, that Deleuze and Guattari are trying to, trying to pinpoint. I'm going to, in the first lecture, kind of explain a little bit more of the concrete details. Like for instance, a lot of people don't know the basic kind of empirical history of, of, of technology in the 20th century. 
we really didn't even understand what information really was in in a very technical way. We didn't learn that really until the the war effort. Really, it was it was a tremendous amount of money and energy that was invested into things like code breaking. Right in the in World War II, there was huge amounts of money being thrown by both the government but also research labs such as Bell Labs. There was huge amounts of money being thrown into what are essentially information problems. And this and this spurred a lot of basic research into what information even is. And so this is the context for why you see people like the theorist Claude Shannon and the kind of mathematical theory of information. We really only pin down the nature of information from a scientific perspective and, and a truly mathematical way in the middle of the 20th century. We never knew that, okay, until, until then. And a lot of the technological products or devices that are downstream of that, that define our world today, the personal computer, the iPhone, whatever it might be, even just cable TV, everything downstream of the information revolution um, is essentially, I would argue, it's essentially the digital plane, Um, true digitization, like truly digital, purely digital businesses, for instance, aren't really thinkable until after the information revolution. And so in the first lecture, I go into that context and explain that I think how and why I think that's essentially what the, uh, the postscript is talking about. I'm going to kind of explain and back out the, the context and and the empirical contents that he's really driving at there to kind of set the scene for, for the problem of technology today. In the second lecture, I will go deeper into uh, Deleuze's philosophy and in particular, the, the, the collaborative works with, with, with Qatari on, precisely how these mechanisms work. If it is true that in contemporary capitalism, the institutions of discipline and enclosure are disintegrating, as Deleuze believes, then how is it possible that capitalism and contemporary civilization is still able to exert such powerful control over our thoughts and and attitudes and behaviors? I'm going to try to explain that in a really kind of really concrete detail that actually makes sense instead of just throwing up more flowery, confusing Deleuzean interpretations. And finally, in the third lecture, that's where we're going to talk about what I think Deleuze sees as the way out of this impasse. We're going to talk about exit, and we're going to talk about actual tactics for escape, in other words, escape from this, what he calls machinic enslavement. And I do think that there's a lot there. I think Deleuze is kind of complicated on this question in in a way that is somewhat similar to the way that Heidegger is complicated in that a lot of people accuse him of a kind of bourgeois passivism or a kind of resignation. Um, you know, he's often accused by Marxists of a, of a kind of idealism. Oh, Deleuze just thinks we can change the way we think, and then that's going to solve all the problems of the world. Um, or some kind of like naive uh, kind of self-help guru or something like this. Uh, and, and I don't think that's the case at all. However, he definitely has a, a political attitude that that emerges from all of this in which a lot of contemporary popular ideas about trying to trying to either stop technology or trying to control or stop capitalism. He definitely thinks all of that is um, just laced with resentment and essentially doomed to fail. So he definitely does have an attitude in which um, he's going to be discouraging us from wasting our time or effort on a lot of the popular conceptions people have of how to act politically or especially how to deal with um, technology. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, he does seem to be strongly convinced that there are ways of thinking and acting and then potentially ways of living with each other that do represent legitimate bona fide um, escape paths 
that if you understand them correctly and if you think and act in a certain way, then in fact, a an escape from technological enslavement is in fact possible. And so his most famous concepts related to this, which a lot of people may have heard of, but probably don't understand are concepts such as the line of flight, for instance, or also what he calls uh, nomadology as a kind of larger um, science, if you will, of, of, of p- pursuit, let's call it. And ultimately, the the position I'm going to articulate in in that last lecture, where I kind of summarize and explain uh, the Deleuzian tactics of of exit or escape, I'm going to give you a fairly a somewhat idiosyncratic or stylized um, interpretation of that. I have my own kind of view of it, and what that boi- basically boils down to is, I think what Deleuze is trying to say is, especially when he talks about nomadology and the war machine and you know, he has these very interesting ideas of what he calls nomad science. I, I really want to focus on 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 that as kind of the crux of of what he's really trying to say, because what he's actually proposing is that we can maintain, I think, a scientific attitude, not necessarily a kind of reductionistic attitude where we're trying to make all of the world a standing reserve. Um, there is nonetheless a way to be faithful to the contemporary frontier of scientific knowledge that one can, one does not have to throw that out. One does not have to throw out the baby with the bathwater as it were. He is not pushing for a kind of totally loosey goosey, you know, Derridaian, um, everything is text, everything is flux type of, of attitude. I mean, that's a character even of Derrida, but I'm just saying that's a more, that's, that's a popular conception that people have. He's actually really, I think, asking us to figure out ways in which we can remain, we can remain, faithful to all of contemporary knowledge and science and even scientific method. But also if we're philosophically sophisticated enough, we can practice that kind of scientific um, knowledge in a way that actually does justice to who we are as, as creatures that does justice to the nature of, of, of what we need specifically around our affects. So, he, what he's really trying to do is I think develop a kind of like what we might even call a social science of our own affects, that there is a way to use scientific knowledge and essentially a kind of social scientific um, uh, reflection or social scientific strategizing through which we can figure out how to um, affect ourselves, affect ourselves individually, but also affect each, each other in a way that allows us pathways of of becoming we might even say revolutionary becoming out of the current capture that we all suffer from kind of algorithmic or axiomatic capitalist control mechanisms so that's that's going to be the larger the larger message that i try to put forward through this kind of reading and teaching of deleuze i think i should cut myself mm-hmm. off there uh, johannes if you'd like to ask me any questions yeah uh, many um uh, on the very last point, straight away, um, would it be would it be would it be justified to say that it you mentioned something like affect ourselves um, and the way that capitalism controls us today is by controlling our base desires, is by playing with them, and is that basically gone? Uh, and then, if if that, if that's if I understood that correctly, maybe I didn't. Uh, then, sort of escaping uh, capitalist control um, is by becoming 
rather uh, prudent about our desires and controlling our desires and therefore in that sense escaping from capitalist control okay are you asking if that's yeah right? yeah sure that that's getting there for sure there's it's something like that now the the, the clarifications or qualifications i would add to that are yeah are, are as follows because in your question there you're you're kind of falling into the very natural tendency, which a lot of us are inclined to fall into today, where it sounds like a kind of conservatism. So you, the word prudence, for instance, you know, it's not necessarily the case that Deleuze is saying, oh, capitalism is crazy and uh, it's too intense and it's, it's uh, overflowing us. And what we need is to be more moderate and what we need is to be more careful or prudent or conservative. I'm not saying that you're, you're saying all this, but uh, that is, a, that is a natural kind of inclination. And this has been a, a source of much critique, especially from the left on, on, on Deleuze for quite some time. It kind of does sound like what I'm saying is that Deleuze is asking us to kind of um, uh, kind of relax and withdraw from all of this capitalist intensity in favor of a kind of more prudent way of managing our, our energies or something like this. Yeah. But what I want to say is that it's, it's, it's really quite different in, in the following specific way is that it's not about withdrawing from technology or, and it's also not about um, necessarily being more resigned or passive or conservative. He's what he's really trying to figure out. And I think this is his unique angle he's trying to figure out how we can nonetheless maintain all of the intensity that contemporary civilization allows us and even encourages us to, to, to participate in. How can we live at that full intensity and maintain that full intensity without falling victim to the traps? And, and there are, and there are many traps ranging from, you know, a kind of vulgar capitalist exploitation to schizophrenia to, to, to a variety of other, kind of potential pitfalls or failure modes that he's very concerned to, to delineate, to delineate. I mean, most of the work with Guattari, a lot of, like, I think it's probably fair to say that most of it is actually theorizing the very uh, many pitfalls or ways that this goes wrong, the way, the way that people can fail and find themselves in fascist tendencies or, or um, resentful dead ended kind of uh, tendencies. And so that would be my only, my only qualification that i mean you're right he, he's trying to basically teach us how to understand the science of ourselves the science of our affects insofar as our affects are contingent on or dependent on various kind of social political technological uh features of of, of our civilization yeah. so you're absolutely right he's, he's trying to teach us how to kind of re-engineer our the, the system of affects that we're embedded in but i would only qualify that it's not necessarily to be more prudent. I mean, obviously, in some sense, he's trying to offer a, a, a more prudent perspective, but that has connotations of of kind of domestication or passivity. Whereas, I think what he's really trying to do is unlock a whole new world of intensity, of potential intensities. That when you're really able to kind of reengineer your your affective relationships, it actually opens onto entire entirely new worlds that allow you to go full speed ahead. Um, that allow you to pursue some of the most exotic and exciting and fascinating and enriching and liberating. Um, and why, yeah, but why, wouldn't the, yeah. why wouldn't the market 
give us all of these intensities and exciting worlds. That's kind of what it's doing. That's right. That's right. And I think Deleuze wants us to lean into it, but in a very specific way. And and that's that's the the purpose of this course is to is to delineate what exactly is that specific way and how is it different than just what most people are doing in being captured by capitalism. Yeah. And so that's what I'll need a few hours to develop. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, f- I find that a bit. If, is, so he's not. Is he almost saying the same thing as Marcuse then, who says that you know the West Western civilization has fallen prey for most of its history to the what does he call it the, the neurosis of rationality, and now finally, as soon as everything's being automated, we can fully live according to the pleasure principle and just follow our base desires. Is, is that roughly the same thing or? No, it's certainly not to follow our base desires. No, no. Uh, I, I think Deleuze is definitely doing something very different than Marcuse. Marcuse was much more embedded in the, the, the new left. He, he had a variety of some kind of social investments in a particular type of activist lineage, whereas Deleuze, Deleuze was very, very uh, committed to remaining free from that. So he he had no such kind of activist commitments like the ones that Marcuse did. And I think Deleuze was also much, much less bullish on kind of, you know, the liberation of, of desire or eros, as you might say, um, as, as someone like I think Marcuse was. So no, I think actually... Deleuze is, is suggesting that, well, in many ways, he's suggesting that our base desires are precisely the problem. I mean, our, it's our base desires that are the tenterhooks uh, for this kind of algorithmic, axiomatic uh, control society that we find ourselves in today. Mm-hmm. And that I would argue, in fact, the the pathway to a kind of Deleuzean radical liberation is through a fairly austere one might even say authoritarian ascesis or, 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 or practice on the self in which the one's basest desires are, are, are flagellated and destroyed and, 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 and dampened. Um, so, you know, he's very interested in the Stoics, for instance, he's very interested in mm-hmm. um, uh, technologies of the self to, to use a, a Foucauldian phrase. He's very interested in how we can essentially I don't want to say control because that would give the wrong connotations, but he's interested in ways that we can correctly understand our mm-hmm. affects and tendencies, our, our kind of physiological oh. subsystems. We can understand if we understand them correctly, yeah. then we can, yeah. we can, we can pursue it, lines, lines of becoming that are incommensurable to the algorithms and, and incommensurable. Oh, right. Yeah, they're too they're too multidimensional for the algorithms to follow, and by leaning by leaning into the into what the market or capitalism uh, provides us with, by leaning into it, and as you said, if, if I understand you correctly, but and then by overturning our base desires and opening up other ways of, of being, it kind of overturns the system from within. So it doesn't fight it from the outside. It doesn't affirm it. It affirms it to a certain degree, but then turns it on its head. Okay. That's, yeah. that- that's, that's good. I like that. I like that line of inquiry. Yeah. There is a lot of stuff in uh, his political works with Guattari about how capitalism is 
you know, as, as Marx taught, capitalism is always kind of uh, pursue, pursuing its own limits. It's, oh, it, it's always nearing its own limits. Yeah. But what, what Deleuze argues is that it never capitalism, what makes capitalism so powerful as a, as a kind of social system is that it never fully kind of exceeds its, its limits. If it were to exceed its limits, it, it would kind of do harm to its own stability. So it has a way of, of modulating itself in, in a frankly cybernetic way. It has, it has a way uh, like a thermostat does, right? It has a way of, uh, of kind of modulating itself to constantly uh, be exceeding itself, but never so excessively that it implodes upon itself. And so there are, there are some ideas in there about how um, individuals or small groups yeah. can to some degree pursue decoded flows, which, which for Deleuze and Qatari is, is um, kind of the nature of, of, of social or political energy in yeah. this kind of capitalist mm -hmm. environment. We can kind of pursue the decoded flows that capitalism allows for to beyond limits that capitalism can sustain. Yeah. yeah. So, so there, there's something to that. So the, what, how, the way you just described uh, capital reminded me a bit of the will to will mm. that Heidegger sees active in all of technology. Right? It, it, it always exceeds, it goes towards its limits, but only in so far as to kind of extend its limits, never, never, ex, never all exuberant, and then extends its limits and then comes back and wills more and comes back and wills more and uh, and that way grows and grows and grows and uh, increases its powers. If that makes uh, no, I think that's a, I think that's a very apropos connection. And so what's emer what's kind of emerging? Oh god, sorry, but then you can see, for example, I, I read I, I read I read Fichte. Again, yesterday, Fichte is also one of the short texts um, uh, on on the Wissenschaftslehre on on his uh, doctrine of science, I guess it is in English. And he, um, you know, the, the, when you read this, it's like reading, looking back, and it's like reading some a bit of a madman, right? Ich bin ich, I am I, and that's that's every soul has forever known everything absolutely, and anything that the human intellect has ever come up with is completely and utterly and absolutely correct. Um, and, and and some other quote is uh, the, the will wills itself. Why? Because it is so. Uh, so you, you you can kind of see this this if if you think in, in that way that you know that human beings only always necessarily respond to a certain historical trajectory. Um, then he's Fichte is someone who expresses that uh, and and uh, <laughs> just shows how how that that will is active. And this is why I keep coming back to if we willfully want to change something, we only fall into the trap of the will willing itself and therefore expanding the powers of the will. Um, so, and that's why maybe nomad, nomadology um, and, and the, you know, escape or becoming imperceptible, which is something that you've, you've been working on uh, is, is interesting in that regard too and relevant because becoming imperceptible um, and becoming a nomad, maybe you can say a bit more about that as well. Uh, mm -hmm. Is is the is is the opposite of just willing for the sake of willing. That's right. I think that's 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 a very astute connection. That's not at all forced. I think to in, in the Deleuzian political ethics, the 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 figure of the nomad is a figure that we might say escapes the grid of standing reserve in other words you know if the modern technology if the modern technological standpoint uh if, if the part of the problem is that it 
it, it changes how we appear to each other. We yeah. now, we now appear as standing reserve. Yeah. In some sense, I think what, what Deleuze is really trying to figure out is, is there a way to think and speak and act such that we can no longer appear to each other only a standing reserve? Can we appear to each other as something other than standing reserve, as the as the living, breathing creatures and potentialities that we are? I think that's really what he's trying to figure out. Or at the very least, at the very least, step one would just be failing to appear as standing reserve to mm-hmm. the general social and political grid. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think that's essentially what is encoded in this idea of becoming imperceptible. It's essentially becoming imperceptible as mere standing reserve so that yeah. one then become um, a potential, potentially observable as something else and enter into new relationships and circuits of becoming. So we, we it's a denial of the human being being turned into material that can at will be me- mechanically uh, pushed from one side to the other wherever you know you you need someone you or a group of people you, you go here and you do this and uh it, it so it, that that that's the escapism that he argues for and that that's a communal effort yeah it, it, it's at least potentially communal i think there one can have a good debate about that yeah does it, does it have to be communal can it be can it can there be kind of individual level um dynamics on that front i think there can be i think the way i read it is this nomadology or the nomad science that he he and, and Guattari call forth is something that can be taken up at many different levels by different people or different groups at different times and places. And I think it's it's amenable to individuals and it's also consistent with kind of group level aggregations. Um, you mentioned something on... I mean, what I found striking is that stop, trying to stop capitalism can be resentful, and he wants to. He's probably enough of a Nietzschean to not become resentful. Uh, and um, some, just something uh, um, on because it just uh, struck me again on, on information and data. Mm-hmm. I think to just say th- something on 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 how Heidegger and Deleuze are really different is because Heidegger, I think, always thinks in terms of origin and provenance. Right, so um, for it, it see it, it sounded like, and I'm not uh, well read in Deleuze, so I can't really, I want don't want to say too much, mm-hmm. but it sounded like um, what you were describing is that it's almost taken as fact that you know digital companies or businesses are possible only after the information revolution or after we consider everything data. Heidegger would ask, how is it that we perceive the world as data as information? Um, and it's then, then I, from a Heideggerian perspective, one would have to answer it. This is another outcome, as it were, not, not a nece- now a necessary outcome, but not the only outcome of how modernity begins to respond and rebel against being with what is now called, you know, empiricism or positivism. Positivism is, of course, an interesting, uh, title it gave itself, this way of thinking, right? It posits what it posits being right this is the the vienna members of the vienna circle are quite open about saying that there is no reality it's just simply positive um and and what we make of it um or how we construct it as we go about it and that that so the the way we respond to the question of being of what it means to be and how beings appear feeds back 
into how they then actually appear and they and that covers over and conceals other ways of appear of appearing and so everything appears as information and data but it, but that means that you're kind of you're already working in terms of it's, it's exclusive and that means it also is excluding other ways of being in the world but even just pointing that out that maybe not everything is data that boom that opens all of a sudden that can open i i've never seen this right this can open that that's the escape door if you like so that simple question, how is it that we think everything is data? How is it that we, that we where is this coming from? And that in itself then shows um, ways of, of escaping, if you like. But they're not escaping from, from out of a receptacle. They just, there's all of a sudden there's a shift in, in how the world appears. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. You're reminding me of when Deleuze and Guattari say somewhere that abstractions don't explain. They are what needs to be explained. Yeah, ab ab yes. Uh, abstractions are, to a certain degree, to, to a certain degree, not, not only, but what Heidegger is trying to do with his other beginning is he's not getting rid of, of everything that was ever said in philosophy. He's actually just reading it again and says, look, what Plato is doing is not talking about two worlds and the theory of forms, because there isn't. What Plato is doing is asking for the simplest relationships. How is it that a carpenter can build, a can produce a chair that is a chair? This is very, it's extremely simple stuff. Philosophy asks extremely simple questions. And then, for some reason or other, the human mind goes off into abstractions and invents possible worlds, etc., etc. And it's very strange to me that we live in an epoch where we would not agree, or most—I I don't like to say most people, because you know who are most people, but let, let's just say it for now—where <laughs> most people would be absolutely thrilled to see a black hole, a photograph of a black hole, and 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 absolutely. Uh, you're totally fine with the explanation by so-called quantum physics that in any given nanosecond of where I make a decision, it splits open into, into 7,000 other worlds and those worlds split up even more than just agreeing that there is a mystery and an unresolvable tension at the heart of existence that we do not have access to, that cannot be resolved, that there is no response to, that's not not knowing because not knowing implies that we want to know. That's all of the, that's completely out of the question. That kind of acceptance of of of, of tragedy, right? That, that that existence is that there is no right choice. No, that's that's terrible. How can you say that? But what's much more interesting to most people is is these extreme abstract theories that absolutely go go nowhere. And I think what if, if anything in terms of you know a, a practical reason with Heidegger, it's he wants to get rid of abstractions. Hmm. Because they, they are kind of a, a prison. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, uh, you you find an exit by just not following abstractions, and then you you cast back into extremely simple ways of being. That's really good, and I think that's that's a strong connection to the Deleuzean perspective. In that, I think Deleuze is doing a similar thing, and for Deleuze, the the real code word there is imminence. Imminence to, to Deleuze is this kind of con he's constantly calling us back to the concrete to right where we are. Yeah. And I think what yeah. all of the investment that he puts into that concept of imminence, all yeah. of the ethical and political work that he has that do is essentially what you're describing about Heidegger. Yeah. I think. 
So there's a text by Heidegger, which I urge everyone to read because it's just beautifully written. It's a lecture course from, I think, the 1950s or 60s called What is Called Thinking? Was heißt Denken? Denken, and that could be translated also as What is Calling Us to Think? Mm. And he says there, look, there's a tree outside. Now we can pretend that, you know, there are neurons shooting through our brain and that's the tree or it's atoms or it's this and the other uh, or some particles, yada, yada. Or if we do not kid ourselves, and, I'm, you know, this is almost a verbatim what he's saying. If we don't kid ourselves, maybe we just introduce ourselves to the tree and let the tree show itself for what it is without without us assaulting and attacking the tree. And so then we land on the soil, if we don't kid ourselves, on which we stand and die. This is extreme simplicity. Because and, and you can you can think of it in extremely simple terms as well, because what we what we tend to do is that it's everything is pre-formatted. Right? I mentioned before you, you can buy a romantic weekend, you can buy a red letter day, which is something that all of a sudden just happens. It's it's an event, it's something that occurs in and often by itself. And not because you've you've pre-consumed it. I mean, if you, if you buy a romantic weekend, why even go? You've already, you know, it, 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 there will be a day when you just pay for it, and you get, you get the experience delivered to your email or or VR or whatever. And it, that's it. Because that, that'll, that'll, that is, you've already done it. The, the only thing that mattered to the to the to the logic of that system is that you've paid for it, because then you keep it going, right? That's so to come back to the. Uh, the capital point, but in terms of the when when you're, you know, the, in terms in terms of how in framing works, I just um, I was I was hiking in the Lake District a couple of weeks ago, and I, I walked up a, um, a hill. I mean, English, you know, they don't have mountains here; they don't have hills. So, so we walked. I walked up a hill, and there was a group in front of me. And when we when they reached um, the peak, the mountaintop, they pulled out the phone. And that was it. It was gone. That moment was gone. It's, it's, it's already not allowed to show itself for what it is. Um, so that's a, maybe a very simple way of of what Heidegger is trying to tell us. And maybe this is ridiculous to some or too poetic, but it simply means that let the let a phenomenon show itself by itself, and that's the released stance you take. Right? It's fine to take a picture. That's not the point. It's not the point that, oh, smartphones are uh, detestable and one should not take a photograph. It's about letting perhaps that moment first kind of arise in and by itself and then be captured by it and then perhaps take a picture. But, <laughs> but, but no, it, it's, it's, it, this is how you get to, I don't know if I mentioned this here or, or other places, um, did you see these pictures from 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 Mount Everest? There's the people are queuing up to get to the the, the, the mountaintop now to take a selfie. It's, it's absurd, and they step over dead bodies because people die up there. Mm. So it's like a, a traffic jam on the highest mountain. So that that's what Heidegger is saying is that in 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 the you know historical for historical man for the technical man for the witnessing man everything becomes available. There there's no mystery. There's no there's no secret. Uh, there's nothing sacred either, because it, how could there be if, if everything's just accessible to everyone? Uh, mm. How can anything be sacred? But if anything, in terms of a practical way of, of of being in the world, for Heidegger, it means to come back, not kid ourselves, get rid of abstractions, and just let something show itself of its own accord, in its own right. 
And then this is how you come back to yourself as well, to your own self, and and then own what you find there, right? Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. So, and, and this is why, sorry, this is why none of this is, you, you mentioned self-help gurus. One of the things that I find, I mean, you know, we're kind of, <laughs> we're on YouTube and people watch this and I have a video on Amofati, which is kind of, you know, a trickery because it, people click on it. Oh, I'm, an, another Amofati video that tells me that, you know, I just have to rationalize and accept everything that happens and everything else happens in that video. So it's, uh, it's, 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 uh, it's a good joke. Um, um, but I think what, what, what 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 is so so dangerous about about then these technologies is that they make available extremely difficult thoughts too quickly, and what mm. people like us and and also listeners should refrain from is to just oh what's the proposition I can take from here and then I just right. you know, apply it no it, it's I think the the the, the opportunity for like the chance here is to is first of all what we're doing is having a conversation and that's an art form that's been slowly eroding right um so that's something that we can bring back maybe and also the necessity to to listen and let something and and that and, and see that that thought is something that develops and that unfolds so it, it's itself it's not i can make a claim and then the next claim and the next claim but we're trying to figure something out as we go and go through it and then something all of a sudden lights up mm-hmm. i think that's what we're trying to do with the course as well Absolutely. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why you and I discussed and kind of agreed to make this sort of two parallel tracks that aren't trying to debate or synthesize too much, but to give each other time, in other words, to give each other time to speak and to think and to not force connections or debates or tensions, uh, but to rather give each of us our space to develop these these perspectives from these two very different thinkers and then to allow them to brew. And then when we're done, we'll circle back and perhaps hopefully have a good conversation about it. Yeah. Because they, they will open up um, by listening. Heidegger says the great Heidegger says, this is a quote, the greatest threat is that we do not listen. We who are numbed by the noises and sounds of technological tools is that we have to come back to listen. To, and this is one of the oldest tr- truths of, of, of philosophy or one of the oldest insights of philosophy, Heraclitus, in what, what's now categorized as the first fragment, says that hoi polloi, the many, are in a, in a hearing stance towards the logos, but they don't listen to it. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the, 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 the threat today is that, you know, you, you, people are looking for meaning, right? Um, and... Which on the one hand is good because it's, we've kind of come out of he- hedonism and I- irony is kind of done, right? Hmm. Uh, so there's now this 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 uh, almost a, a craze in search for meaning, and you can see that on YouTube. The talk there's talk of the meaning crisis, etc. There's nothing new under the sun if you if you're familiar with Hegel and, and Nietzsche and others. But uh, it's at, at the same time the, the the danger that is present then in such a project is to give two simple answers. So well, that's something we're, we're refraining from. And mm-hmm. which is why you said we, we give each other the space and then the, it, it runs parallel, but it opens up then these other, you know, you could say dimensions or realms. And then it come, it brings something out um, that that is very strange maybe in the beginning, uh, but then by working through that in, in a serious manner, that, that, that's, not, that's not just consumption. Right? It's not just like sitting back and oh, okay, that's interesting. but um, 
but but then it changes how we are in the world. I think that's ultimately that must be uh, what we're trying to achieve with with something like that, and with the conversations that we have. Yeah, that's really I mean, well everything else would just be feeding the spectacle. That's right. And I think that's one of the reasons why we're trying to do something like a course to try to elevate w these conversations and these videos that we're both actively making and producing. We're trying to kind of create something larger to create a kind of space and time and experience that has different types of, of, of transformative effects on ourselves as well as hopefully possibly others. And something you said about Heidegger uh, specifically around his ideas of listening and hearing was very reminiscent of something Deleuze says about speech and in particular kind of democratic ideas of, of political voice, because he says that to paraphrase him, he says somewhere that, you know, the problem is not for how to, you know, the problem is not how to figure out a way to allow more and more people to be able to speak. Right. There's this kind of like very fashionable kind of lefty idea that, you know, we have to give minorities greater voice and, and this sort of, you know, we have to figure out ways to give more and more people voice. Um, Deleuze says, no, that's, that's actually a, a big mistake. That's not, that's not at all the political uh, problem or that's not at all a, a desirable solution to the, to the political problem of the moment. He says the, the real problem is to figure out how we can create spaces of silence, how we can, <laughs> how we can make it possible for people to not have to speak. And yeah. there's something very, um, very consistent there with what you were saying about the need yeah. for listening. Yeah. No silence. Heidegger is, is, is all about silence. Uh, interestingly, when I clap my hand, that's when you started to hear silence. So silence comes after mm. uh, noise. Um, but so there's, a, mm. there's a Russian pianist, and I always forget his name, so I'm not going to pretend that I, I know his name now, but he says something to the effect that um, music only arises out of silence. And maybe that's why we have very terrible music today. But that's the... it's a good hypothesis. So we had agreed that we would aim for about two hours and now we're coming up on about 15 minutes left for that. So I think that was a very nice introductory conversation about the course. What I'm suggest, what I would suggest now for our last 15 minutes is if it's okay with you, Johannes, perhaps we um, welcome some questions or deal with some comments. If anyone has yeah. any comments or questions yeah. about the course um, for those of you who might've just joined us, we are doing an introductory conversation or short, very short uh, lecture, you could call it from both of us and a little bit of back and forth on the course that we are developing on Heidegger and Deleuze on technology. So um, yeah, if you just joined us, there's a link in the description below. If you're interested in even possibly taking a course on the attitudes or, you know, attitude is not a, a good Heideggerian phrase I learned today, um, the, the philosophies of technology that, uh, that that are produced by Heidegger and then also by Deleuze separately, of course. If that's something that you're interested in and you'd like to potentially take a course, there's no obligation, but there's just sign up below just so we have your email and we'll let you know when we when we figure out the details of the course. Um, so yeah, if anyone has any questions or comments right now, we're happy to take them. So I'll be checking the chat. Oh, we got some, uh, looks like we got some German speakers in the, in the house. I can't read those. Uh, Let's see. The chat is pretty active. It looks like. Um, all right. Let's see. Here we got one. Uh, where did it go? Wood. Sorry, the chat is moving too fast for me. Uh, 
Uh, would love to hear what Johannes thinks about Heidegger's contention. This is from James Cortides. Sorry if I pronounced that incorrectly. What Johannes thinks about Heidegger's contention that only a God can save us from mm -hmm. his 1966 Der Spiegel interview. I think we addressed this last time. So if you want to. Uh, I, just... I, I have no idea what I said last time, but okay. uh, it, it uh, <laughs> I, I mean, again, this, this, this question, you know, it, it'll, it'll mean something else to everyone. This is, this is what's so dangerous about assuming that language is communication. Um, it, I think what Heidegger is trying to get at is that the with Hölderlin, modernity is the absence of the divine. And this absence of the divine is at the same time already the um is if you if you begin to think in, in the as Heidegger does, the absence of the divine is it's sort of it's is the announcement of its return. It means that we live in an age that is where the meaning of the age is meaninglessness, right? The, the sense of the age is senselessness. There is no orientation. There is no higher meaning to it. If we lived in a time of higher meaning, we wouldn't have to. Uh, we, we would just be ex exuberantly wealthy and happily ever after. Um, but this this the sensation of of lack of meaning, which is itself not possible because meaning is in a certain to a certain degree always there, but I'm just trying to, or an absence of meaning, a, with, a withdrawal of meaning meaning means that we have to uh, we are always already wondering about what is the meaning of life. Right? This is uh, the, we had talked about self help gurus. I'd rather live. Uh, in an epoch that welcomes a new divinity than in an epoch of self-help. Um, I think that what what the the what what it means that nur ein Gott kann uns jetzt noch retten, uh, only a God can save us now, is that uh, to safeguard for Heidegger, to save for retten, means that we are cast again in our into our essence. And our essence for Heidegger, our Wesen, the realm that we dwell in, is mortality. We are mortal beings. And that, that means that there is no, he doesn't speak of, uh, you know, uh, he's not a theist in that theological sense that, that God interferes with creation now um, or that that's what's supposed to happen. But it's, again, a stance <clears throat> mortals begin to take where they accept their mortality. And that comes sort of from the, from the insight into uh, immortality, into the divine, which is it's, it's the region that is opposed to it but that mortals need to come back into their essence so that we don't lose um, our understanding again, to come back to what I said before, of, of the simple fact that, that existence is tragic um, and that there are unresolvable issues at the heart of existence. But also if you begin to think in terms of, of divinities again, Right, and, and I'm not saying return to Christian faith or anything, but if, if certain a certain di divine arrival or a, awakening, if you like, takes place, then that could also, or very likely, will lead to appreciating that being is a gift, that thinking is a gift, right? That we are gifted with with stuff because when we <clears throat> uh, when we when I say thinking, maybe many people think of neurological processes, right? So we don't even care about what it is that thinking can bring about, for example, wonderful poetry. Uh, 
what we care about is just the, the sheer process and function, uh, the functionality of, of thinking. It's very deprived of everything. So if anything, what that means is that it becomes, this is an arrival again of something richer, wealthier, more exuberant. Um, and that's what then is expressed in, in an honoring of the divine, which is at the same time, at the same time, an appreciation of limitation, finitude, and mortality. Hmm. I hope that makes, uh, any sense yeah that made sense to me that's good we have also have a question from someone named Gloff, who's asking me uh justin what got you so into deleuze <laughs> and the basic answer to that question is just that i i'm mostly a, a social scientist i'm trained as a positivist you know quantitative empirical social scientist and but in grad school i was always very interested in radical 20th century french philosophers and Reading Deleuze with my kind of social scientific training and background, Deleuze always struck me as as different than than the others that he's often lumped in with, especially in kind of 20th century uh, French thought, especially kind of post-structuralism and, and all of the all of the kind of negative baggage that it's associated with. Deleuze always stood out to me. I always had a strong sense that he was actually really on to a few things that really set him apart from the, the, the rest of the post-structuralists. And I think that's because, at least that's, this has always been my interpretation. Mm. I think this is because of his intense grappling with the empirical sciences and, and a variety of the empirical sciences. In other words, I, ever since I first started reading Deleuze in grad school, I've always had a strong uh, belief. I've always sensed in his work very strongly that there is a empirical social scientific rigor and validity that people just don't understand because the people who read Deleuze and study Deleuze are very, very rarely trained as scientists. And so that's, that's essentially the, the, the short answer to the question. I got very into Deleuze for, from a social scientific perspective, because I'm convinced that his work is socially science is scientifically and especially kind of social scientifically valid in a way that to this day has, has never really been fully understood or written down. So that's what I've been trying to, I've been, I've been on, on the search for that interpretation or that understanding uh, of Deleuze ever since grad school. And that's what I'm still working on. And in some sense, that's going to be what the, my portion of the course will be about de developing that and really kind of expressing that once and for all, hopefully in, in a, in a articulate and compelling way. Let's see if we have any other questions or comments. All right. We got. Uh, here's a question we can take from songs 4k. The question is, is technical social theory now deployed as a instrumental human technology? Hmm. I think you could argue that in fact, uh, a lot of academic outputs and intellectual outputs, at least insofar as they're institutionalized today are absolutely, uh, kind of symptoms and products of the kind of uh, hyper instrumentalized oppressive technological civilization mm -hmm. that that we are kind of embedded in no doubt you know I, so so in other words social theory does play a kind of active positive role in the very kind of technological enslavement that that we are seeking to escape and i think this is one of the reasons why deleuze is so obscure or seemingly obscure the the very idiosyncratic and difficult language 
I think is in part a function of this. It's in, it's a function of other things also like the kind of sociology of French intellectual life in the, in the 20th century. But one reason for it is essentially in the effort to escape all that is rotten with kind of institutionalized academic thinking and, and, and production, there is a, a kind of vector there towards developing unique languages and, and idiosyncratic uh, symbologies, if you will, that are necessary to kind of become imperceptible. I think there, there, there is something to that. And because ultimately the, the, the point there is that, you know, to exit the grid of, standing reserve, if, if I might say so, one is going to almost by definition in the short term, one is going to appear as, as at best, um, nonsensical or at best, uh, it, you know, obscure at best, and at worst, maybe even appear stupid or uh, the fool or whatever the case might be. So in the short term, at least in that in that escape from technological enslavement from escape from that state of escaping the grid, if you will, um, one has to, one, one has to do some rather strange maneuvers that to most people are just going to be kind of incomprehensible. So yeah, I, th I think the answer to that is yes, most social theory, at least insofar as it's institutionalized is absolutely just part and parcel of the kind of algorithmic axiomatic capitalist, uh, control mechanisms, I think. And, you know, to do true philosophy or true science, one has to, uh, embark on a, uh, a totally different vector that's orthogonal to uh, institutionalized social theory precisely for this reason, I think. I don't know if um, you want to speak to that at all. Yeah. Um, in, in different words, Heidegger says exactly that about the university and has said that from very early on. Uh, he says that the university is no longer a university. It's a technocratic or bureaucratic uh, machinery um, that lumps together <clears throat> various disciplines uh, for the sake of um, exerting power. And this, I mean, this question is extremely interesting because it points to uh, how <laughs> how theory itself, <clears throat> the way it's, it's now uh, unfolding, can be used to control. And you have to think of, I mean, the most dangerous number is two, and Hegel's dialectics are certainly, I would say, uh, used um, as a social theory that's, you know, then made very practical in uh, discourse, shall we say. And maybe that's, uh, I'll leave it at that. Yeah, That's very good. Yeah. So uh, there's one more question. And I think we'll just call this the last question since we planned for two hours. I think that's a healthy, a healthy amount of questions. Uh, this one is for you, Johannes. Uh, do you oh, think, yeah. do you think that Heidegger believed democracy is essentially a technological understanding of the people? Or does he respect its Greek origins? Okay, I'm not sure I can do this question justice because I'm not sure I understand it completely. Um, <clears throat> I mean, it, it it plays with the with Heidegger's etymologizing, right? But etymologizing, uh, what you have to respect is that Heidegger is not a nominalist, so he doesn't think that democracy in and of itself always means the same thing. And just because the Greeks spoke of the kratia of demos. Uh, <clears throat> of the power that lies with the people, or say the council of 500 uh, Athenian men, um, th that is somehow you know atemporal and and can therefore just simply be applied to today. And just by using that concept, everything will be good. It's it's not that would be 
that would be a magical nominalism where you just believe if you just say the right word, boom, everything changes. Um, um, but um, I think on the first half of the question, uh, not technological, but technocratic. Mm-hmm. I think for Heidegger, <clears throat> um, the modern, I mean, Heidegger is opposed, interestingly enough, to the nation state. Uh, the reason he gives the Spiegel interview, which was mentioned, is because he was the Spiegel is a radically left-wing magazine. Just for everyone, anyone who doesn't know that, uh, Heidegger certainly was not a radical leftist, right? Uh, but uh, he uh, Heidegger gave that. So he could have talked to uh, a conservative outlet. He didn't. He spoke to the Spiegel because he saw in the Spiegel. Um, sort of, uh, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, because Heidegger was opposed to um, that kind of ordo liberalism, capitalist uh, technocracy of Adenauer and Erhard afterwards and and other chancellors. Um, For Heidegger, there is no, also no difference between capitalism and communism. Uh, He sees both of them doing basically the same thing, which is just producing standing reserve and different, you know, there are different management systems of, of techniques as it were. Uh, and if, if contemporary democracy is either socialistic or capitalistic and for Heidegger, it is itself of techniques and, and can only deal with the human being, for example, as, as of course happens as a consumer, uh, you know, we were called, we're treated as consumers by our respective governments um, we're supposed to consume. This is what we're supposed to do. This is um, our role is to consume. You know, now now we're supposed to consume green stuff, of course, right? So we're very organically uh, consuming the world or nature or whatever, which is which is also it, it. By the way, there was a question on Plato's cave in here somewhere, which is very interesting. How shadows uh, keep changing. But um, so, yes, I think for contemporary democracy for Heidegger is just a, sort of a, a word to to is is mass control and, and therefore is not that kind of a wholesome community of mortals that could be that he doesn't work out fully, but that could be developed uh, from his texts. Great. And could be, which then. You know, could be ethically speaking, could be on 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 a smaller scale, could be as democratic as uh, as you know, because he doesn't say that he doesn't speak of a hierarchy. He speaks of a community of mortals that comes together and that certainly makes uh, uh, builds that community um, surrounding very simple things again, like um, uh, a child bed and a coffin. Uh, <laughs> these are strange examples, but it just just sort of the that the, the the entire circle of existence becomes uh, respected and it, it's wholesome again. So you don't uh, outsource dying to the hospital uh, or taking care of the elderly to the hospital as our uh, democracies are wont to do, uh, but you bring it all back together to the community and then that could be as as radically democratic as you like, where everyone has, you know, there's, there's, there's an attempt to find compromise. So there's a bit of a, Maybe all over the place that answer, but yeah, I'll leave it at that's that. Great. That's great. And there you go, folks. That is what our course is going to be about Heidegger and Deleuze on technology. This essentially, but uh, eight more hours and in much greater detail and in focus. Yeah. So the, the content for the course is going to be videos that we record 
alone privately. We're each going to do lectures that we record as videos alone and privately. And then we are going to review them and have another final discussion after a few weeks after we're done uh, shooting all of the lecture videos, we'll do another live stream like this. And, and we'll look back and we'll, and we'll have a discussion about where our lectures overlapped or where they didn't overlap. And so, yeah, folks, if you're interested in what we're talking about, and if you're potentially even curious about the course that we're developing right now, please just go to the link below this video and, and sign up. Uh, if you sign up, we'll send you the syllabus right away. So you can just have a look at the reading list. You can mm -hmm. see in a little bit more detail what we plan on teaching and how we plan on teaching it. And uh, yeah, it doesn't commit you to anything. It's just, you'll be on our list so that we'll give you an email later when we're done, just to let you know that it's done. And if you're interested in pursuing the course, you're welcome to. And if you're not, that's fine too. Um, another thing I'll just throw out there is that yeah, we don't know exactly how we're going to structure the course. If we decide to do something that's more live and dynamic, we might have to cap the number of students that can take the course. So if that is the case, we're not sure we're going to be doing that. But if we do that, then we're going to work um, on a first come first serve basis from the email sign up list below. So that's why I'm saying if you're even just curious, do just sign up at the link below, because um, that's essentially going to be a waiting list. Also, if, if we even limit it, we might pursue a different path. But um, yeah, thank you so much for hanging out. Um, thank you to Johannes. And uh, Johannes, did you have any parting words or thoughts or anything you wanted to share with the audience? Well, no, just thank you very much for uh, granting this uh, uh, time of a space, <laughs> this presence. Um, and I'm look, I look forward to, to writing uh, the course material. And then we'll see how we do it, if we do it live or whatever. But um, sign up, send us emails if you have suggestions. And we'll be back in a couple of months from now and, and have it all ready to go. Yep. There you go. Well, thanks again, Johannes, for doing this with me. I'm really excited to see what we're able to create together. Great. Thanks. All right. Take it easy. I'll let you go now. Yes. Bye. Bye. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you thought that was cool, then don't forget to subscribe. And it would be even cooler if you left a review. I'd appreciate that. And yeah, just to learn more about what I'm up to, you can check out theotherlifenow.com. That's all. And I will see you around the internet.